You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to another dual podcast of Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Thank you for downloading the show. Uh, first, just a quick update on the project that I mentioned in the last podcast and in the newsletter about the film that I'm making. Uh, as I've been doing the research and writing for this, I've realized that I have a lot more to say about it than I originally intended. Um, the The basic idea of the project is a comprehensive debunking of the Islamic Antichrist theories. And at first I thought I was just going to be collating a lot of things that I've said in the past about it and kind of formatting it for film. But really early on I realized that I had um, a whole lot more to say about uh, the issues and uh, some of the particular theories that are out there. And it's actually been pretty rewarding because it it gives you the opportunity to figure out stuff that... um, you know, in my case anyway, that I haven't really tried to figure out in any in any deep way before. And some of that is what we're going to be talking about uh, in the rest of this podcast. But all this to say that I ended up deciding that uh, what I am actually doing right now is, is researching and writing a book. And I've actually got uh, quite a bit done. I think about 20,000 words or so, so far. Uh, but I've got a little ways to go. Well, a lot of ways to go, actually. But um, the plan is that when I'm done writing the book, and while it's being edited and all the things that have to do to make it into a book, then I'm going to start working on production, including recording the audio book and then using that audio to make the video and all the stuff that needs to happen. But because I had such high hopes for the film and because, in essence, I really uh, consider the film to be the the, the the main thing that I'm working on here, um, it's going to take a little while because, number one, it's going to be a huge project. It's going to be very long, so the video editing and all the production in itself is going to take some time. Um, And because I want it to be such a high quality, it's going to take even more time. So I suppose I'm asking for your patience with me as I work on this project, which is growing bigger and bigger the more that I work on it. But I am excited to be working on it. I think it's uh, great to have a project that I consider uh, so big and so worthy of spending a lot of time on. Uh, And in exchange for your patience, I'll be putting out some podcasts like this one that is discussing some of the more relevant and more interesting things that I'm discovering um, along the way. So that way I can uh, be working here on this stuff and uh, you guys can also be uh, kind of a part of it too, enjoying the podcast as I progress down this uh, road of research and writing. All right, so let's just jump right in here. We're going to talk about the seven kings of Revelation 17, 9 through 11. This is a passage that has given me some trouble in the past. Um, As many of you know, I wrote a a book about Revelation 17 and 18 called Mystery Babylon. But when it came to these passages, though I discussed them at some length, I I didn't come to any conclusion about the identity of the kings other than suggesting uh, some possibilities. And... Uh, and I kind of left it an open question, but it became more uh, relevant to try to figure that out as I was discussing some of the theories about Revelation 17, 9 through 11 that the Islamic Antichrist uh, proponents have. So let's just start off by reading the, the verses in question, and we've got a lot to discuss about it. So this is what it says. This requires a mind that has wisdom. 
The seven heads are seven mountains the woman sits on. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But whenever he does come, he must remain for only a brief time. The beast that was and is not is himself an eighth king, and yet is one of the seven and is going to destruction. Okay, so there's a lot to talk about. I suppose we should get into a bit of background here. John is seeing a vision in Revelation 17 of a woman sitting on top of a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And the angel comes along later on in the chapter and, and tells him the meaning of the vision. And the angel starts to describe what the vision means in very plain terms. The vision itself is very allegorical, a woman and a, and a seven-headed beast, but the angel's interpretation of that vision is, is very uh, down-to-earth. They are kings, it's a city, these kinds of things. Um, so the question a lot of people have is about these heads of the beast. Now, uh, it's generally accepted that the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is in some sense the Antichrist. I say in some sense because really the Antichrist that we think of, that is the guy that's going to come in the future and do all that bad stuff, he is really actually only represented by one of these heads. Um, the rest of the heads are also in some sense the Antichrist uh, as well as the beast itself, but they're kind of like different... I kind of look at it sort of as the, the spirit of Antichrist or perhaps the manifestations of this of the Antichrist throughout history. It's not appropriate to say that the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is Satan himself because when we look back at Revelation 13, five chapters later or earlier than this, we get a description of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that's exactly the same. Names of blasphemy on its heads. It's uh, the people marvel at it and and. All the descriptions about the seven-headed, ten-horned beast are the same, and few people would disagree with that. Um, but when you recognize that we're dealing with the exact same seven-headed, <coughs> ten-horned beast, <coughs> excuse me, it becomes clear that Satan is is a, a the dragon who is empowering this seven-headed, ten-horned beast. He is not the beast itself. So the general idea that people have is that this beast is the Antichrist, but it seems that the Antichrist has had uh, different manifestations over the centuries. And as John says here, or as the angel says, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that five of these heads have fallen at the time that John is writing. One of those heads is, and the other head, which we discover not just here, but in other places, is the Antichrist that's to come, has not yet come, but when he does come, he must only remain for a brief time. And then it says, the beast that was and is not is himself an eighth and is and yet is one of the seven and is going to destruction. This last uh, part is kind of confusing, I know, but essentially what is generally believed here is that the seventh head is the same guy, the Antichrist, or the same kingdom as we're going to talk about at, at length here. But it seems that he has two reigns, the same king or kingdom, uh, rules twice, but technically there really is only seven. And a lot of people do different things with this 
and we're going to get into some of that as we progress. But that's the basic concept that most people have that they then springboard to different theories about this. It is true that the early reformers taught that the Antichrist and his kingdom uh, was the Roman Catholic Church, and they tend to see these seven heads as seven mountains. Um, but that's not really, very few people see that uh, like that uh, these days, and that's because, number one, <clears throat> the Greek here uh, demands that the seven kings, the seven heads, which are seven mountains, are also seven kings. And five of those have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. So we know they're not hills in Rome, they are kings. And in addition to that, uh, if you start saying that five of those have fallen, what are you going to do with that in terms of it being hills in Rome? Five hills in Rome have fallen <clears throat> at the time that John was writing. There's only uh, two more hills in Rome when John is writing. No, that's not true. And only one hill is actually in Rome when John is writing, and then another that one's going to go away, and then another one's going to come. It just obviously doesn't work. And it, it further doesn't work when you recognize that we're dealing, this last head is the Antichrist. And when you apply all the things that the Antichrist does to that head or mountain or king, um, none of it makes sense. Because then you start having to say, well, one of the hills in Rome is going to get a mortal head wound, and one of the hills in Rome is going to kill a bunch of Christians, and one of the hills in Rome is going to cause everybody to get a mark on his right hand or forehead. I mean, it just falls apart the more that you investigate this Seven Hills idea. I think the early reformers were great in, in all kinds of doctrine, but uh, when it came to uh, eschatology, they just didn't have a lot of, uh, of patience with it. And I say that because, I mean, people like Calvin didn't even do a commentary on the book of Revelation. They considered it you know, somewhat unimportant, and really... Uh, a lot of those guys just kind of copy and pasted a lot of what the Roman Catholics believed about the end times and just sort of uh, made it be the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't really change the, the 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 basic doctrine that the Roman Catholic Church had, which was Augustinian kind of uh, amillennial idea. So I think that they were, anyway, that's sort of neither here nor there. But most of the interpretations these days um, center around a, a more literal or more face value approach to this passage and take the angel's interpretation more or less uh, uh, literally. So, for example, the angel says that five of these kings, the angel calls them kings, have fallen. So we need to find five kings that have fallen in history. We need to determine which king was in John's day. And then the one to come is uh, clearly important, too, for uh, identifying the Antichrist. Though I would say that I don't know if there's all that much information that we can glean from this passage about the nature or the origins of the Antichrist, but we'll get into that later. So one of the big issues here is that are these kings or kingdoms or both? And in the book Mystery Babylon, I really centered on the fact that kings has to be in, in view primarily here. I'm not adverse to the idea that this is speaking about kingdoms as well. It doesn't say kingdoms anywhere in here. It, it, when it talks about kings, it says the word kings, all the pronouns are he did this and then he did that himself and the, and the rest of it. So it's speaking of it as, as it's kings and not kingdoms. In addition, it's using the word kings and it doesn't use the word kingdoms. But the problem is, is that it also uses the word mountain uh, and 
most interpreters that want to really focus on this being nations uh, will center in on that mountain idea. And they'll say, you know, mountain in scripture means kingdoms. That's kind of one of these blanket statements about allegories. You know, anytime you see mountains, it means kingdoms. And I've done a lot of, uh, uh, you know, word studies on the word mountain and looking for it, all the different usages of it and whatnot. And in one sense, I have to agree, but but very tentatively, it's certainly not as clear cut as they say. Uh, usually what they do is, is point to all the references to Mount Zion, my holy mountain, this kind of thing in reference to Israel in general. But that's kind of going somewhere that it's not necessarily intending. The Bible can speak of Mount Zion as representative of the nation of Israel in a way that it can't do with other nations or kingdoms. So, and I think there is at least one other passage, perhaps uh, it's referring to Edom, the mountains of Edom, or something like that, uh, that seems to be a representative of Edom. So they'll quote passages about, you know, God referring to Mount Zion as representative of Israel, and I think that Edom passage, and then they sort of declare, look, mountains means nations. And although that's tentative, I'll, I'll go ahead and give it to them, um, but... But the problem I have with uh, some of the Islamic Antichrist theorists is that they adamantly disagree that this has anything to do with people or kings, and that it only has to do with nations. Um, and so that is, I think, carrying it way too far, because when you do that, you have to disregard so much of not just this passage, but also back in Revelation 13, where the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is one of the heads is clearly the person of the Antichrist. Um, so if you say that the set, one of the heads here in Revelation 17 is not the Antichrist, not the king, which it clearly says that he is, uh, but rather his kingdom, then you kind of box yourself in because back in Revelation 13, that same head uh, that has a mortal head wound that does all the things that we know about the Antichrist. I mean, Revelation 13 is like, where we get the doctrine about the Antichrist. If, if Revelation 13 is only talking about a kingdom and not a king, then a person has very little to say about what the person of the Antichrist will do. So they're, they're contradicting themselves because when they say that, they usually do agree that Revelation 13 is talking about the, the last head is talking about the person and not necessarily the kingdom. I'm okay with it being both, but it has to be primarily focusing on the actions of a person, both in Revelation 13 and here. So uh, we'll perhaps get into that a little bit more because there's a lot more to say about that kings or kingdoms idea. But for right now, I just want you to know that the Islamic Antichrist proponents, that the five that have fallen, the one is and the one is yet to come, and when he comes, he must remain only a short time, is only talking about a kingdom, not the king. So the lists. Okay, so I've struggled with this in the past because um, there isn't any really good way from the text itself. And I've looked at this from, I think, every angle that you can look at it to see a, a, a rock-solid case to identify who these kings or kingdoms are. It's not, it's not in any way that I can tell explicitly telling us to look uh, for any specific king or kingdom. I have to insert this uh, correction into here. I'm about to say the list of the five fallen kings are Egypt, 
Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And I'm going to say all throughout the rest of this podcast that same list, even though it's chronologically out of order. It should be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, and Greece. But I had this wrong in my notes, and so every time I uh, referred to it in the podcast, I was looking at my wrong notes, and it just... Uh, kind of got self-perpetuated. So anyway, uh, try to disregard that. It's not that big of a point. It doesn't really have anything to do with the the uh, points that I make in the rest of the podcast, but I thought I would put this correction in there in any case. Uh, the traditional view, the now more accepted view of this, is that the uh, kingdoms are uh, starting with Egypt, then Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Those are the five that have fallen, and if you want to apply kings to that, you can do so by saying Egypt, Pharaoh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Assyria, Sennacherib, Medo-Persia, uh, I, I don't know, I never how to know how to pronounce this name, Asuras, Ahasuerus, uh, which is sometimes considered to be Xerxes the, the first, and then Greece, I would submit Antiochus, the Epiphanes. Those are my uh, guesses for the kings that would be associated with those kingdoms that have fallen. Again, I think it's possible that both can be in view, though the focus here is on the kings and not the kingdoms. Uh, let me also say that uh, the Bible's interchangeability of the words kings and kingdoms, which people are so quick to point out when they make cases like this one, is natural because in matters of state, uh, there is no good reason to make a distinction between the king or the kingdom, and so therefore can be used interchangeably. If the king does something uh, in terms of starts a war or, or invades something, that kingdom is doing that. There's no reason to make that distinction, and so it's a very natural understanding of, of seeing these as interchangeable. But when the Bible you know, is telling you to focus in on one or the other and is using the language of one or the other, it is not appropriate, in my opinion, to just say it's okay for me to use the other here, even though it contradicts the rest, because it is better for my theory. But I'm I'm uh, getting off the subject here. So Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, uh, Greece, and then when it comes to Rome, uh, which is the one that is, the five have fallen, we've already mentioned the one that is, is clearly Rome. Nobody would disagree with that. As far as the king that would be in focus there, it really depends on when the book of Revelation was written. Uh, both of those kings have what I would consider criteria to be a manifestation of the Antichrist uh, spirit in that day, uh, whether it's Nero or Domitian. Both of those guys were very, uh, Domitian, especially in later life, was very, you know, God-King kind of guy. He was a guy that really started that whole uh, emperor worship as in like right now kind of thing, people in Rome did have a cult of emperor worship before that, and Nero uh, did in involve himself with that too, but it was usually with dead emperors. It started to become now, right now I'm God kind of thing right around this area. So I, I think either Nero or Domitian is fine, depending on when it uh, is truly discovered when the book of Revelation was written. I don't have a, a, a theory on that right now. Uh, I mean, I have a theory, but I don't can't prove it. So... Okay, so the list that we have up to this point, um, Egypt with Pharaoh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Assyria, Sennacherib, Medo-Persia, Ahasuerus, Greece, Antiochus Epiphanes, and Rome, either Nero or Domitian, uh, do I agree with uh, making those five kings be those 
uh, five nations or kingdoms, or six kings in this case. Um, when I wrote the book, Mystery Babylon, I was convinced that in order to find these past manifestations of the Antichrist, there would have to be some notable criteria that all of them shared, whether that was uh, persecution of uh, Jews or Christians uh, or uh, uh, you know, some kind of blasphemous nature, because in order to try to f find these kings that way, I was basically trying to make a list of everything that it says about the Antichrist, trying to find those things that are clearly uh, unambiguously types of Antichrist, and then go looking in Scripture for those things. And I never got far down that road. Um, but I do think that this makes sense, even though I think it's kind of arbitrary. People say, well, the five kings are obviously Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Um, there's no real obvious connection to that. I mean, because you can't really go back to Daniel 2 or Daniel 7 and say that because they didn't include, for example, Egypt uh, in one case or, or, or some of these others. Those were only four kingdoms. So they've added two kingdoms to this list. What, Based on what criteria did you do that? Um, so it's kind of arbitrary, and I've resisted sort of endorsing this, uh, this list of kings and kingdoms because there's no clear way to tell if it's true. Um, but as I started to look at this, I do lean more towards this baseline being uh, the correct understanding of the five kings that have fallen, for example. And the reason is because if you look at the Bible... Uh, in the history of the Jewish nation, for example, which ultimately is the history of the, the Old Testament, you do have the the bad guys in the Bible are also unbroken kingdoms. That is, in terms of chronologically. Egypt, of course, is the initial bad guy with, you know, after Abraham is, is, is made a nation, they go to Egypt which is okay for a while, but then Egypt becomes the the main enemy. I don't think many people would also disagree that that Pharaoh's actions are uh, are typical, and he's often considered to be a type of antichrist because of a lot of the specific things that he says and does. So I see Egypt as as possibly being one, uh, and then of course Babylon was next. You know after. The is uh, the people of Israel made it through the desert, settled in Israel. Everything was, I hesitate to say, hunky dory for a long time, but they had a lot of internal struggles. But um, they weren't really challenged in any serious way by any kingdom until Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, when uh, when Nebuchadnezzar carried, you know, destroyed uh, the city of Jerusalem and carried off the uh, people to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also. Uh, is somebody that people point to and say, look, there, there is a type of Antichrist. You know, here's an image of me, uh, you know, in Daniel. Uh, and it says, you bow down. He says, bow down to this image and worship it, or else I'm going to kill you. And all the rest of the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar does is clearly a type of Antichrist. Now, it is true that Nebuchadnezzar later uh, sort of repents and becomes a godly man to some extent, but that doesn't change that his actions were um, somewhat obviously anti-Christic in nature. And with Assyria, Sennacherib is the go-to Antichrist uh, type. And again, this is not something that many people would disagree with. He is a clear type of Antichrist, not just because he, you know, destroys um, the, the, you know, the northern kingdoms and everything surrounding Jerusalem and, and whatnot, but he also is, has this 
this uh, scene uh, where he is boasting against God and and declaring himself to be better than God and all these things that when people do commentaries on that, they say this is clearly a type of Antichrist. Sennacherib is considered to be a type of Antichrist, and I think he is the only Assyrian king that you can really say, yep, yeah, that's the one. So Sennacherib uh, would be the uh, Assyrian type. Then Medo-Persia, of course, uh was the one that came chronologically after Assyria. It's the next bad guy in the Bible, although it starts off as a good guy uh, with uh, Cyrus the Great letting them, um, uh, you know, go back home and and all this other stuff. Medo-Persia seems to be okay at first, but then by the time we get to, uh, uh, is it Esther, that... um, that we have this King Ahasuerus that uh, is tricked, albeit he is tricked, to uh, set forth a decree that all the Jewish people in his kingdom will be killed on a certain day. And that is a pretty uh, antichristic kind of thing that he does. I think that is a type of antichrist too. Though, again, in that story, Uh, He is convinced to relent a little bit, but because of the nature of Medo-Persian laws, he can't actually revoke the law. So he instead allows the Jewish people to simply fight back. Still, the decree is, you know, kill all the Jews in my kingdom on this day, but he does allow them weapons and able to fight back their attackers, and they become uh, somewhat victorious in that. So that's my best guess for the king, which is Xerxes I, which I think you may remember from the movie 300. Uh, and he probably wasn't a Nephilim, but uh, the I don't know if the movie 300 was trying to make him be like a Nephilim or whatever, but he certainly was a weird character. And then with Greece, it's a lot simpler. Greece does obviously conquer Medo-Persia and is the next uh, great uh, enemy in the Bible. Not only Greece is a little bit more difficult because it's prophesied with Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel, all the stuff that Greece does. It's pretty unambiguously Greece. In fact, I think it even uses the words. But uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, I don't have to convince anybody, would be the uh, king in view there. If And I'm okay with maybe changing some of these kings around, but this is my best guess for these. Um, and here I'm trying to say, of course, that I am endorsing that the general view of taking all the chronological enemies of the Bible with their typical Antichrist manifestations in terms of a king in those typical kingdoms to be the, in this case, the five that have already fallen in John's day. And then, of course, Rome being the one that is we could talk about Nero or Domitian or in their uh, persecution of Christians or, or whatever. They also fall into those categories. Now, one thing that kind of, you know, the, the ways that these kings and kingdoms uh, manifested their uh, Antichrist-like characteristics are not all the same. That is to say, some killed and persecuted Jews and Christians, some uh, simply were uh, declaring themselves to be God and doing blasphemous things, but they don't all match up that way. For example, Xerxes, um, he didn't, as far as I know, declare himself to be God or, or say anything in terms of blasphemies about uh, you know, himself being God because that wasn't a part of the Medo-Persian religion. They were essentially Zoroastrian or uh, whatnot, which worshipped you know, the moon god and all that stuff. So it's not, it's not a, a, as 
as tight of a interpretation as I would like, but I do think that this is the correct understanding of this. So, with that in mind, let's talk about the Islamic Antichrist view of this list. And they would say essentially the same thing that we've already said up until Rome. Egypt, now keep in mind they don't think this has anything to do with kings, which is important for their theory, but uh, this is their list. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then after Rome, the seventh king is the Islamic Empire, and then the eighth king is the revived Islamic Empire. So let's take some time to explain that. The Islamic Empire um, existed from about the 600s, and according to Joel Richardson's book, about uh, the year 1923. So this is about a 1,300-year uh, empire. And it's true that the Islamic Empire came next chronologically. So this this tends to make a, a little bit more uh, chronological sense if, if all these uh, one through six are kingdoms that came one after the other. The Islamic Empire did, in effect, um, conquer Rome, though that's a little tentative because at the time that they, quote-unquote, conquered Rome, it was the Byzantine era. Rome was a shadow of its former self. But but in in a real way, you could say that the Islamic Empire came after Rome, and certainly it, it did and was a, a vast world empire and lasted a long time. Very, very serious, big, bad empire. And then they have the eighth king being the revised Islamic empire. Now, this in itself is pretty interesting because I actually agree with this more than I agree with the revived Roman empire idea for this reason. If what they're doing is actually a little bit smarter than what the revived Roman empire uh, folks are forced to do. Because if you remember the seventh king, there's only seven heads on this beast. And the seventh king is the one that comes after Rome. Now, we're going to talk about, it's certainly not saying it's the next one on the list that comes after Rome, but but it says when he comes. Talking about the seventh head, when he comes, he's got to only remain a short time and the rest of it. So, but my point here is that the the seventh and eighth kings, whatever they are, have to be the same thing. And that's what he's done here. The He says the seventh is the Islamic empire and the eighth is the revived Islamic empire. So he takes the that mortal head wound as... Uh, being an empire, uh, which which gets a mortal head wound, in his view, means the empire dies and it comes back to life. The same kind of thing that the revived Roman Empire does, but with this one notable exception. This actually makes more sense than the revived Roman Empire, because if you consider that the sixth empire was Rome, and you and John is saying that's the one that is, and then John says the one that comes after this. No, how does he say it? I don't because I got to be careful the way I say that. Um, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But whenever he does come, he must remain for only a brief time. The beast that was and is not is himself an eighth, and is yet and yet is one of the seven and is going to destruction. So the Roman the revived Roman Empire people have to say, Well, Rome is the sixth king, and when it says and when it says that the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain only a brief time that would necessarily have to be the revived Roman Empire as the seventh, if you're understanding what I'm saying. The historical Roman Empire was the one that John was talking about. Um, and he's saying that, that another, when it comes, it must remain only a brief time. So that's that brief time, I would argue, is a clear reference to the three and a half years 
that the Antichrist is given authority to persecute the saints. And that three and a half years is is spoken of all over the book of Revelation. In fact, the same Greek word is used there in Revelation 12 to, uh, to describe the amount of time that Satan has to wreak havoc in the last days, a brief or short time. So I think that this is a clear reference to that short time. But what I'm saying here is that what they then have to do, and what I've not seen a revived Roman Empire uh, proponent explain very well, is if Rome is the sixth, then the revived Roman Empire is the seventh, then what do you do with the eighth? I mean, you've got to essentially put Rome, six, seven, revived Roman Empire, eighth, revived Roman Empire. You've got to put, you've got another king that you've got to deal with here. So I, I feel that the Islamic uh, Antichrist theory does have this going for it. They are at least um, choosing an empire that makes a lot more sense in terms of the way that John says this. The seventh empire has to be different than the Roman Empire. If it, I'm not explaining this very well, but um, that, and then that different empire than the Roman Empire will revive. You can't, you can't make the seventh empire, the one that comes uh, uh, after number six, be the the revived version, because what you would essentially be doing is skipping number seven and going straight to number eight. That what they and and the revived characteristics that the number eight has. So I'm not explaining that very well, but uh, all that to say that I do give the Islamic Antichrist proponents some credit here because this at least makes more sense than the revived Roman Empire uh, idea. But I think it's notable that the revived Roman Empire idea doesn't get their revived empire, Roman Empire doctrine from this passage. It's kind of forced onto this passage. What, where, where they're getting that from is some, somewhere totally different. The, their interpretation of uh, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, which I've done uh, a lot of stuff on in, in the books. You can find it in Mystery Babylon as well as False Christ. And there's also a video about it called the uh, Revisiting the Revived Roman Empire or something like that. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. I don't remember. But the point is that um, they're getting that doctrine over there and then despite the troubles with having to put the Roman Empire in the last three slots here, um, as opposed to the last two slots, which is much more grammatically and contextually accurate, um, they kind of force it in there, and their arguments uh, for why they have to do that are not at all convincing, in my opinion. But I'm not here to discuss the revived Roman Empire and the merits of it. I'm here to discuss the uh, interpretation of the Islamic Antichrist theory uh, proponents on this passage. So let's look at their the merits of their interpretation of this passage. So there, you know, Richardson spends a lot of time uh, in his book, uh, Joel Richardson, that is, who I, again, believe is the most articulate uh, proponent of the Islamic Antichrist theory and respect him a great deal. Um, he says that the merits of this is primarily in that the Islamic Empire did come chronologically after the Roman Empire. And in some senses, it destroyed the Roman Empire, at least in some senses. Um, so the idea is that if the rest of the six were chronologically you know, based, if that's a pattern that we must continue, then the Islamic Empire is the natural next choice. And I feel like that's a pretty good argument, but we need to Remember a few things. First of all, this passage in Revelation 7, uh, 17, 9 through 11 is not telling us that the next king must 
be the one that comes chronologically after it. He speaks in his book as if that's what the text is saying. All we need to do is look at the one that comes after this. But all it says is, has it this seventh king has not yet come, but when he comes, he will, etc., etc., etc. It's not telling us in the text, hey, simply just go look for the next one on the list. Though I admit that the pattern of the first six makes that uh, something that we need to deal with. But to this, I would say that um, there has been kind of a prophetic pause uh, after 70 AD, when the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans. This period of dispensation and waiting has lasted over 2,000 years so far, and there's little reason to try to figure out, figure in all the empires that have come and gone during that time into the prophetic equation. So, for example, very few people are attempting to factor in the British Empire into the system of ruling empires. Scripture seems to kind of disregard world politics from the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD until the future Antichrist appears on the scene. And this, of course, is the basic dispensational understanding of the so-called 70th week of Daniel, in which there's a kind of prophetic gap that ended with the destruction of the temple by the Romans and will begin again when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel, thereby starting the 70th week of Daniel again. Um, so this is why the angel says the other has not yet come, but whenever he does come, it is quite natural to assume that the advent of the seventh head, which we know of as the Antichrist, will make its first appearance with the start of the 70th week of Daniel, which is a future event, obviously. And there's no reason to go hunting for empires that existed in the last 2000 years during this prophetic no man's land for a fulfillment of this seventh kingdom. So it's quite likely, in my opinion, that the Antichrist kingdom will be a unique kingdom in some sense that is not tied in any obvious sense to any of the previous kingdoms on the list. In fact, that is essentially what Daniel 7 tells us when he says that the Antichrist kingdom is, quote, different from all the beasts that came before it. So I feel that the best argument that Richardson and others have that the Islamic Empire came after the Roman Empire chronologically and should thus be considered the seventh slash eighth kingdoms is nullified by the fact that scripture in no way tells us that the seventh eighth kingdom is simply supposed to be the next empire that shows up after Rome. And it's far more likely, perhaps even obvious, that the first appearance of the seventh kingdom of the Antichrist coincides with the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And therefore, we can easily disregard empires like the Islamic Empire, which appears almost 600 years after 70 AD, as well as empires like the British Empire, which came after them. They are just not significant to scripture and are totally overlooked in terms of Daniel's 70th week prophetic timeline. The other main problem that this theory has is that the angel, when interpreting this understanding of these seven kings gives us a, a description of this king. It's the only real description that the angel gives us about this kingdom, other than the fact that it will seem to revive in some sense. But it says that it's only going to remain a brief time. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but whenever he does come, he must remain only a brief time. Now, this should be somewhat obvious, in my opinion, that that 
uh, as I mentioned before, Joel Richardson in his book tells us that the Islamic Empire lasted from 632 A.D. to 1923 A.D., and that's almost 1,300 years. To put that in perspective, the Islamic Empire lasted longer than the Babylonian, Assyrian, Medo-Persian, and Grecian empires combined. And I'm taking the long version of the Grecian Empire, not just the Macedonian stuff, but everything that came after that, Antiochus, the Didache, or not the Didache, the, I never know how to pronounce that, Diachi or whatever. But the the point is that four, if you combined four of these kingdoms, Babylonian, Assyrian, Medo-Persian, and the Grecian empires, it's still not as long as the Islamic empire was. So why would the angels single out the one descriptive element it's going to tell us about the seventh king is that it is only it must only remain a brief time. And yet the Islamic empire is the one of the longest running empires in the history of the world. So that seems to be a problem. And I, I can imagine a, uh, a rebuttal to this would say, no, no, it's only talking about the, the second manifestation of the Islamic empire, the revived Islamic empire is only going to last, you know, seven years, three and a half years or whatever. That's the the, the short time that the angel is talking about. The, the seventh uh, kingdom, that is the historical Islamic empire that lasted 1,300 years, that's not uh, in view in this short time description. But I'd have to say that you, you can't do that based on the grammar and context of this. Because what it's talking about, what the angel says, remain the kingdom, head, mountain, what king that it says remains only a short time, the seventh, it, it, it is the seventh. It cannot be skipping the seventh and only talking about the eighth. Let me read the passage and interject uh, at points that I think that you'll agree with. Five have fallen. Okay, five have fallen. One, that is the sixth empire, is. Any disagreement there? Five have fallen. One would be, what, the sixth. And the other, that would have to be the seventh, right? The other, seventh, has not yet come. But whenever he, that is the seventh, we haven't moved on to anything different, different here, does come, he, that is the seventh, must remain only a brief time. Five have fallen, one, the sixth, is, the other, the seventh, has not yet come. But whenever he, the seventh, does come, he, the seventh, must remain only a brief time. So, whatever this is, it has to be the seventh that remains a brief time. Now, I think that this is easily explained if you, uh, unlike the Islamic Antichrist proponents, allow that this is talking about a king and not a kingdom only, because then you can explain that the seventh and eighth kings, remember there's only seventh, but the last one uh, kind of has a dual reign. It, it, it seems to die and resurrect and is therefore counted as eight, though it technically is only seven. The entire combined 7th and 8th reigns are short. So when it says the 7th is short, it's talking about the 7th kingdom, which is different than all the others, is going to be short in total. And it has kind of an addendum to that, telling us that the 7th king will also be the 8th, but it's really only going to be the 7th. So we don't have to pick and choose, or heaven forbid, skip the 7th altogether and just pretend we're only talking about the 8th. Um, you have to deal with that fact. The seventh kingdom is in view when the angel tell, tells us it's going to remain a short time. And if your seventh kingdom is the historical Islamic empire, which Joel's, Joel Richardson's is, 
then you need to come up with why the angel calls an empire that is by far one of the longest lasting empires in the world is singled out as being short. So some of you might say, well, the Bible is, you know, speaking of a long period of time, you know, 1300 years isn't that long uh, compared to the entirety of world history. But, you know, in some sense, I'd have to agree with that. But you'd have to say, why does the angel pick out this one empire out of all the others and say this one is short? You would at least expect that empire that the angel singled out and pointed out and said that one, that's that's short. That only lasts a brief time. You would expect it to at least be one of the shorter ones on the list in context, if not the shortest one on the list. But as I mentioned, that one that it pointed at is longer than, you know, if it's the Islamic Empire, which I, of course, don't agree with, it's longer than four of them combined and could be considered one of the longest ones on the list, depending on how you parse out the uh, Roman Empire and how you parse out the Egyptian Empire. But uh, if you want to take the long view of the Roman Empire and the long view of the Egyptian Empire, then it's only the third longest on the list. But trust me, it's really a long-lasting empire. So I feel this is a, a, a very detrimental problem to saying that the Islamic Empire is the seventh kingdom on the list, that you have to at least take the one clue that the angel gives you about this empire, besides the fact that uh, the king seems to die and resurrect, that is, that it is short, and apply that description. You can't just just take that one description and pretend it never happened, um, because it doesn't really suit the theory at all. But I think that the true weakness of this is the, uh, the Islamic Antichrist proponents being adamant that a king is not in view here, because the whole seventh, eighth king makes perfect sense if we're talking about a king primarily. And you understand that the Antichrist himself, a, a person, uh, gets a mortal head wound and seems to to raise from the dead. Whether he does or not is an open question. I talk about that in the book uh, that I'm writing at some length. But but it's talking about a person. And and then, of course, you can explain this whole seventh, eighth kingdom quite easily. But if you don't, then you're left with a great deal of contradictions. And I would just point out on this subject of whether or not the Antichrist... Uh, himself, a person, is the one who seems to get a mortal, mortal head wound and then seems to have that deadly wound healed, um, is in view, or is that only talking about some kind of nation? Now, it's interesting when you look at Bible scholars on this, because they have a huge difficulty with this uh, particular issue. And what you get is people that don't want to say that it's not talking about the Antichrist, because it seems quite obvious from reading things like Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 that this is the same This is the same beast. They both have seven heads, ten horns. They both have names of blasphemy on their heads. They're both referred to uh, by their having been killed and yet living. They both have, quote, earth dwellers, quote, wonder at them when they see their apparent resurrection. They both have people whose names were not in, written in the book of the light of life worship them. It's the same beast. It's not a coincidence. And when you look at the beast that we're looking at here in Revelation 13, as I mentioned, it is the Antichrist. If this isn't the Antichrist, the guy that persecutes saints, the guy that, uh, you know, forces people to get a mark of the beast, technically it's the it's the uh, 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 false prophet that, that enforces that uh, thing. And same thing with the image of the beast. Uh, it The false prophet kind of enforces it and makes the image, but 
the images of a guy, of the Antichrist, and forcing people to worship the beast. Um, I could go on. We know a lot of stuff about the Antichrist himself as a person because of Revelation 13, and everybody knows that, and they're not going to 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 just say, oh, none of that stuff has to do with the person because, again, it's using the terms he, him, he does this, then he does that. It's talking about it as a person, and almost everybody agrees that Revelation 13 is at least in the primary sense, talking about the person, though, of course, uh, it can be talking about a kingdom in some sense, too, because, as I mentioned, the actions of a king are synonymous with the kingdom in many just obvious, regular, natural ways. But it has to be primarily talking about a kingdom. And very few people would say, oh, no, there's no there's no person in Revelation 13. It's all kingdom. But when it comes to Revelation 13, 17, then you have uh, a good a good number of people that have seemed to have forgotten Revelation 13 and will take this view that it's only that the heads are not just kings, but they are or not kings at all, rather, that they are kingdoms. So let's talk about this just a little bit. And I want to talk something about the nature of why this uh, this happens and some of the things that, that scholars do. I want to talk about John Wal- Walvoord for a minute. John Walvoord, of course, is the, the guy that everybody kind of looks to for the standard interpretation of prophecy uh, in the evangelical dispensational world. Well, what does John Walvoord say about it? And John Walvoord is, uh, I don't agree with him on a great deal of things, but I do think that he at least attempts to do uh, things correctly. He's a scholar. He's he's very articulate, and he's right about a whole lot of stuff. But I, I choose him because it's typical of, of what people have to do with this. So they'll look at Revelation 13. He looks at Revelation 13, for example, and he sees the, the seven heads of the beast as nations. He basically says, these are nations and not kings. You know, the... the in Revelation 13, verses like 1 through 3. But then he, in the rest of his commentary in Revelation 13, he talks about it as a person. Then the Antichrist goes here, he does this, this person does this. He has seemingly, he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth and doesn't even seem to realize it. That head that he said in the first part of that verse, that had a mortal head wound, he says, the revived Roman Empire, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. That's not talking about a person. That's only the nations, he says in the first part of Revelation 13. But then when he, when the, the, the ch- same chapter talks about that head, I mean, it doesn't change grammatically. Well, what else does this head that have a mortal head wound do? Well, I'll tell you, he does this and goes here and does this. And then John Walvoord, just seemingly pretending, you know, like he doesn't notice the contradiction, starts talking about it as a person. So whenever it talks about a mortal head wound, oh, that's a nation, don't pay any attention to that. But when it talks about everything else that this head does, then it's a person. That's kind of typical of what you see with scholars. I, I think a good example of this is from, there's a, a uh, uh, an article that was put together by Nathan Jones of Lam, lamlion.us, where he asked 11 Bible prophecy experts the question, will the Antichrist be killed and resurrected from the dead? And... Of those 11, only two guys, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Mark Hitchcock, said, yes, the, without reservation, the Antichrist will truly be killed and truly be resurrected. Uh, one of the people was undecided, kind of wishy-washy, and the other people, he says, said no, that the Antichrist would not be killed and resurrected. So it would seem at first glance that, that the, the majority of sco- the scholars do not believe that this is talking about uh, you know, the Antichrist 
uh, being killed and resurrected. But when you read those eight guys that said no, that they didn't believe this, it becomes clear that they actually are just doing what John Walver did. They are saying uh, they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth because these guys are for whatever else they are, they are at least trying to be true to the text. So they'll say things like, uh, well, let me read this one from, uh, who's this from? Uh, David Reagan. It says, I side with those who believe that the Antichrist will not be killed and resurrected from the dead. I think the passage is speaking of the Roman Empire rising from the dead and not the Antichrist. But... If it is speaking of the Antichrist, I do not believe he will be resurrected from the dead. Instead, I believe his death and resurrection will be a deception using modern technology. And I think as you read through the others, it becomes clear that the reason that they can't accept the and have to talk out of both sides of their mouth and be wishy-washy about this is because of the theological implications of saying that the Antichrist really is really dies and really resurrects from the dead because God only has the power to resurrect from the dead. Satan does not. And it's because of this theological problem that they have to do all this gymnastics. And and eventually, where I'm going with this, leads to uh, the... the and causes so many problems because people look at these, you know, it's, hey, it's talking about kings. It's saying a person is doing this. No, 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 it's just a kingdom. No kings are involved here. And it really comes back to this theological problem. And there is a, uh, I've mentioned on several occasions, the paper, um, Can Satan Raise the Dead Toward a Biblical View of the Beast's Wound by Gregory Harris, Professor of Bible Exposition at Master Seminary. Um, and though I think that his premise is correct, he does say some things that I you know, might not agree with or whatever. But I think the basic concept here is that, um, that, that in 2 Thessalonians 2, it's, it explains this whole problem. It says in uh, verses 9 through 12, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with unrighteous deceptions among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Here we go. And for this reason, God, that is not Satan, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So in context, God is sending this strong delusion for the purpose of making people believe the lie. What lie? Well, in context, it's the coming of the lawless one and the acceptance of him. Now, when you cross-reference this idea with the verses that speak about the, the apparent death and resurrection of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, it becomes pretty darn clear that the reason everybody uh, ultimately sides with the Antichrist is because of this apparent death and resurrection. When it resurrects, then that's when the world wonders after the beast, who can make war with him, etc., etc. In most cases, um, it's describing very clearly that the the... The, this apparent resurrection is the reason that everybody eventually pivots towards the Antichrist, which, of course, would make perfect sense with the Second Thessalonians 2 verse, because it's this strong delusion that God sends that is the key pivotal point that makes them believe the lie. 
which lie the Antichrist. They might have had different feelings about the Antichrist up until this point. And, and this makes no sense if we're talking about a nation. Do you think really that everybody would, you know, let's say the common idea, ISIS is going to turn into a caliphate and thereby resurrect the, uh, the Islamic caliphate. Do you really think that that act is going to make everybody wonder and worship the Islamic caliphate because it came back from the dead? Wow, they, they formed the caliphate again. That's so awesome. I'm going to worship them. You know, it, it, logically, it doesn't make sense. But uh, again, I, I, this issue is, is has a lot of things that uh, that require explaining about it. So uh, I think I mentioned, yeah, this is in the book, the Mystery Babylon book earlier when I was talking about the Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. That is actually found in the Daniel uh, commentary that I did, not the Mystery Babylon. But uh, anyway, so so when you put all this together, um, uh, I have given a few reasons why the seventh head of the beast in Revelation 17, 9 through 11 is not the Islamic empire. Number one, that the text is not telling us to simply look for the next empire after Rome. Number two, that the Islamic empire is one of the longest lasting empires in history and therefore would not be described by the angel as only lasting a short time. Number three, identifying the seventh head as one yet to come is not just more grammatically and contextually accurate, it is also what one would expect based on the usual understanding of the 70th week of Daniel. Um, that is to say, you know, we should expect the seventh head to, to, when it says, you know, it's not yet come, it's talking about it will come when the, you know, when the 70th week of Daniel starts again. Not whatever comes after Rome, whether it be the British Empire or the Islamic Empire, just choose one of those. There is a genuine recognizable prophetic gap and so that's what the seventh head is talking about and number four that richardson richardson's limiting the mountains heads kings of revelation 17 to only kingdoms despite scripture clearly telling us that kings are in view he contradicts himself and makes it impossible to see that the seventh and eighth kings are speaking of the antichrist himself which means that there is no reason to understand the seventh king as the islamic empire for those and other reasons. Okay, so I guess that's going to wrap up this show today. I did intend to talk about some other things, but we're already at an hour today, so I'll save that for a future podcast. I want to thank, of, thank all of you for your patience with me. Um, it is hard for me to sometimes get so involved in a project and spend all my time writing and, uh, and not producing videos and other things. I always feel like I'm letting everybody down by not uh, producing stuff that they can see or touch or feel uh, at any given time. But uh, I, I have um, a strong feeling that this is important. It's not just a debunking of one of uh, the many wrong theories about prophecy out there. Sometimes it does bother me. I think, you know, well, I'm going, I'm basically doing like a book, like, like let's imagine I existed right at the end of the Roman empire. And I wrote a, a book about why, Attila and the Hun is not Gog and Magog. I mean, it would be completely useless these days because nobody anymore believes that Attila and the Hun were Gog and Magog, but everybody believed it back then. So, so it could be completely useless. But as I've said before, this is the logical outcome of the theories that I've come to so far. If anything, or half of what I've said so far is true, 
then this really is a major problem. And as I've started to look into this more clearly and to see how 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 much the world, the Christian world, is believing this particular theory, it is important for me to put something comprehensive out there about it because there isn't anything that has done that, especially not something that is not using its own presuppositions to prove its presuppositions or to disprove another person's uh, instead of using, uh, you know, logical, deductive reasoning, I suppose. The tip to Sherlock Holmes, I guess. Not that I think I'm like Sherlock Holmes, but I do like Sherlock Holmes. I like reading Sherlock Holmes. Elementary, I like. Well, the last season hasn't been that great, but certainly Sherlock and all the movies with Robert Downey Jr. Why am I talking about this? I don't know. Anyway, so that's it for this uh, episode, and I will uh, see you guys on the other side. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.